Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike Indivina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. I'm Mike Navina, and thank you so much for being here today. Today, my guest is Mark Urselli, and Mark is an amazingly talented engineer who has worked with a lot of artists in a lot of different genres. He's worked with artists such as U2, Foo Fighters, Nick Cave, Lou Reed, Sting, and so many more. He is the studio manager at a studio called Eastside Sound in New York City, and in his time, he has been nominated for seven Grammy Awards, and he's won three of them. So Mark definitely has a lot of experience under his belt, and in this episode, Mark gets into a lot of great tips for setting up your mixes and working smarter, not harder, and having a lot of purpose behind everything you do. So I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Let's not waste any time. Let's just jump right into today's interview. Mark Urselli, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix Podcast. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. No problem. Thank you. For people who might not know your background, can you give us a little bit about your story and how you got into audio engineering and music in general? Yeah, sure. I got into it the same way a lot of audio engineers have, meaning I was the geek in the band that wanted to record the rehearsals. I was in rock and metal bands when I was 15 and 16. I started buying uh, microphones to record the rehearsals and a multi-track recorder. And then at some point, it just dawned on me that this uh, could or should really become my career. So I started putting time and money and efforts into turning a hobby into a career. I opened my first recording studio when I was 17 in Southern Italy, uh, in the basement of my parents' house. And about two years later, I uh, realized I wanted to spread my wings and go beyond the limits of Southern Italy and just go beyond what the horizon looked like it was. So I went to New York for an internship. New York blew my mind. I worked my way up from being an intern that was scrubbing toilets and pouring coffee to uh, becoming the chief audio engineer of that same studio where I started as an intern. That's amazing. That's quite the journey to, to make. And, and obviously a, a big decision to make as well in, in deciding to pack your bags and move to the other side of the world, basically. And, and well, I, not necessarily a whole other side of the world, but you know, make a big move to, to intern, right? Like I think- Absolutely. Well, it was- definitely the best decision of my life because it's changed the course of my life forever. So in that sense, I'm very, very happy that I made that decision. I'm curious to get your opinion on that though. Cause I, I feel like, you know, these days I feel like the, the whole studio market has definitely shrunk down quite a bit and there's not as many big studios out there. So there's, there's fewer internship positions available. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of people that are getting into this world of recording because home studio stuff is so affordable, you know, what, what advice would you have for people who are getting started these days? Like, do you still believe that the internship model is the way to go? Or do you think that there's maybe a better, better alternative? I think the internship model is the best way to go if the path that you want to take is that to become an engineer in a studio because you can't really know you can't really learn the ways of the studio through youtube or through recording at home with with cheap gear that's as you say now affordable uh so if that's the path you want to take i think an internship is the best way to get that aspect of how things work that said if you you know a lot of people have different different uh, aspirations some people want to become djs some people want to become producers uh of beats which to me is a different thing than 
a producer in the traditional sense of the word. Uh, and so, you know, if that's all you want to do, then you probably, you probably don't need the studio experience, but if you want to become a studio engineer, as the word implies, you need to work in a studio. Otherwise it's like becoming a pilot, but only flying the simulators. <laughs> I like that analogy. That's great. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, I, I somewhat agree with that because I, I think that there are definitely a lot of people that are making great productions from their home studios. Right. And I, I don't know, like what, what's your take on that? Like making records from home. Do you, th- do you think you can get great results from that? Or do you feel like it has to be done in the studio? I think that depends on the genres. If you are recording, um, uh, dance music or hip hop, you can definitely do a lot or everything at home because the equipment today allows for that. But if you're recording acoustic music, like classical music or jazz or rock or metal, I think you need a real studio because there's just no replacement for a good sounding room. Uh, like you, you can, you can track drums in your bedroom all you want. They're never, never going to sound like I always get these, uh, you know, tracks sent by people who record at home or in smaller studios. And they'll, they'll be like, I want the drums to sound like the Foo Fighters, but I recorded the Foo Fighters myself. And I recorded the Foo Fighters in a huge studio East West in LA, basically the size of a, you know, small stadium. So of course the drums are going to sound huge because they have all that room to spread, uh, in acoustically speaking. Uh, and it's just not going to sound the same if you record the drums in your basement or with low ceilings on your, in your bedroom, uh, without room mics. So, you know, there's no substitution for studio if you are going for an acoustic sound. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, obviously, yeah, if you're, if you're tracking in a, in a properly tuned room or like a big room, you're going to get character out of there that you just can't get out of a, a small bedroom. You know, obviously I think that these days, a lot of people are relying heavily on like sample augmentation and, and, you know, using reverbs and that kind of stuff to create, to, to almost to recreate those studios. Do you feel like that would still work or are you against samples? I, I think, like you said, it's an attempt to recreate something real. So you can, uh, you can be content with that or you can go for the real thing. But if you want the real thing, there's no degree of emulation that will sound like the real thing. I mean, there, there's great string libraries that you can fake your way through a, a string arrangement or a pad in the background, but there's not, not a single string library that sounds like real strings. Uh, there's, you know, it's just, and, and the other thing that's missing is the player, because if you play all the parts, uh, on MIDI or you program them, it's never going to sound like if the drummer plays them or the string player plays them, you know? So it's just, there's no, there's no really real sub substitute for the real thing. There's only an approximation of it. For sure. Yeah. Uh, You know, I agree with that too, even about the MIDI stuff, because I think that, uh, part of it too is, is I think with MIDI, you can basically make any sound sound like anything. So most of us are musicians and we know our primary instrument and we don't know the nuances of those other instruments and how, how, how they would play that, how like someone who's trained in that instrument would play it. So it makes it that much harder to, to program because those little nuances aren't, aren't quite there. Right. It's like a drummer, you know, whenever, whenever I listen to most sample drums, it's like one velocity all the way through and there's no variation, there's no groove, like drummers just don't hit drums that way. So, you know, that, that makes sense. (laughs) 
Exactly. Yeah. So I do want to take it back just a second uh, because w- earlier you just said that um, you, you got started when you were about seventeen. You started off your first studio. Like how how did you learn all this stuff? Then obviously you you interned, and that was probably where you saw a lot of growth. But the fact that you at least had a studio when you were seventeen would imply that you at least felt confident enough in your skills to to start making money off of this and doing it professionally. So how how did you learn this stuff? I learned with what I described with an internship. So my very first internship before I went to New York was in another recording studio in Italy uh, called Pure Rock Studios. That's really where I started. And it's funny because I started using that studio when I was 16 as a client. At the time, I was in a black metal band called Funeral Oration, and we recorded our first demo there. Uh, then I, w- then I started producing bands very early. I was 16 or 17 and I produced a band from my small town called SES. It was like a folk psychedelic band. And I, and I took them to the studio as a producer in the old sense of the word producer, uh, went to the studio, made friends with the engineer of the studio who kind of became my mentor and we're still in touch 25, 30 years later. And um, he was very instrumental in in helping me get started because when I decided I wanted to open a recording studio in my parents' basement, first of all, I bought the console that he was selling, which was an analog uh, 32-channel inline console with automation. That was my first big purchase. Um, and And then I interned with him for two or three months to learn the basics, and I read all the manuals. This is before the era of YouTube. Now all the information is on YouTube. You can just Google, what does a compressor do? But I remember reading the manual of the first compressor that I, le- that I bought in order to, to, uh, to understand how compression works. And of course, putting it in, you know, using it in the studio at Pure Rock Studio gave me gave me the actual real life experience. So yeah, internship, I say again, I said before, is the best way in my opinion to learn things. But but you want to complement that with with manuals and or YouTube or what or an education in an audio school, whatever it is. Real life experience with education need to go hand in hand. For sure, yeah. I mean, you can consume all the information you want, but if you're not actually implementing any of it, then what good is it, right? You're not gonna you're not gonna learn that trial and error and see how it actually and vice, is. And vice versa, you can learn how to operate gear in a studio, but not really understand what the gear is doing. So that's why they really need to go hand in hand. I think. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. You've you've mentioned it a couple times now the the term producer and kind of the different meanings behind it and I'm I agree with you I feel like that's a term that is totally kind of thrown out of proportion or or just like it it's there's a lot of misinformation as to what a producer is these days and I'm curious to get your opinion on what that means and you know what it was versus what it looks like now or if it's any different at all Yeah well the term has been completely misappropriated and misused by generations of what we refer to as hip hop producers, which are not producers. They're basically beat makers. Yes, you're producing a beat, but you're ba- that makes you a composer. You're composing a part of a, of a song and, and that's not a producer. A producer is somebody like George Martin who produced the Beatles. It's somebody like, um, uh, you know, Rick Rubin. Those are the producers and. I think it's a huge disrespect to those kind of producers to call somebody that makes a beat a producer. 
So it's a pet peeve of mine. I try to educate people as to the right word use of the word producer and the right use of other words that have been misappropriated, like STEM, etc., etc. So, you know, part of my uh, my probably useless and futile attempt at re-educating people to use the right words for the right things. I 100% agree with that because it's it's something that as you get into this, you know, and you start working with clients, you're going to be sent the wrong terms all the time. And it's kind of like this this game of deciphering what it actually means to those people, you know, and I, I, I saw that uh, you said stems and obviously I'm sure you saw the Bob Clear Mountain thing recently where he, he went off on stems and the definition of that, but it's so true. It's like people just use these words interchangeably and it, it really, it does, it does a poor, poor job of explaining what they actually need to get done. Right. <laughs> I read about the Bob Clear Mountain thing. I haven't watched the video yet. I can't wait to watch it because I know I'll get a kick out of it and I'll put, post it and use it as an example when I have to re-educate people. <laughs> Bob is great. Yeah, you should definitely watch it. I think you'll, you'll love it because it's it's exactly to just what you said about producers. He said the exact same thing about stems and, and just kind of describing how people totally misuse it. So it's, it's definitely a great watch for anyone who's listening to this who hasn't seen it. Um, I think it was just like an Instagram story that he made, but I'm sure it's yeah, floating like around yesterday now. or two days ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah great. Yeah. <laughs> so you um you also you do a lot of production work and you you call yourself a producer. I'm curious to get your your opinion in terms of like how involved you like to be when producing a record. Like what does that role look like to you and like do you do you get involved in the songwriting process or is that really kind of you know do you not view the songwriting part as part of the production role? I don't. I think they're two separate things. That's why I think a producer is a producer and a songwriter is a songwriter. Otherwise, you know, there wouldn't be two different terms for it. I'm not saying that the things can't overlap. Of course they can. But uh, the producers that have, you know, gen have created the use of the world producer, like George Martin, Rick Rubin, people like that, they were not songwriters. Maybe they'll help with an arrangement. I think George Martin was writing string arrangements for the Beatles. Uh, and again, there's a word for an arranger, but producer is a producer. So I don't get involved with songwriting. Uh, that's something for songwriters. I, uh, if I'm a producing a project and I'm involved from the beginning to the end of the project, I see the project through, I help with choosing the right studios, the right musicians. I do give my opinion because that's what a producer does on how to, uh, hopefully improve the song. Maybe I'll help with an arrangement, things like that. But songwriting is songwriting and in my opinion should happen before producing starts. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, I guess there's that kind of like gray area of like working on arrangements versus the songwriting side. And, you know, some people will say that if, if they help with the arrangement side, then therefore they should get some sort of songwriting credits and that kind of thing. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think it depends on the contribution that somebody does to the song. I mean, if you're, um, if you're, if, if you come in as an arranger and then you write what becomes the, the hook of the song or you, you know, you write what ends up being uh, the, the thing people hum or the thing that makes the song, then I think it's fair that you get a songwriting credit. Uh, but, you know, all comes down to communication. You need to talk to the people you're working with. Make sure you have your splits sheets in order. Make sure you have your communication in written form, make sure that everything is clear and that there's no doubt as to who's doing what. I, I'm a big fan of keeping the roles separate as much as possible. So 
if I'm producing a record, uh, usually when I produce, I also engineer. I've never been in a position where I produce, but I don't engineer because obviously I'm a, uh, you know, engineering is a big part of my life. And so I wouldn't let somebody else engineer. Um, but I have been in the opposite situation very, very often where I'm just the engineer and there's either no producer or a different producer. And it's important to know your role and to know how to separate your role. If I'm engineering, I'm not going to offer any kind of, uh, any kind of advice or opinion because that's the job of the producer that's sitting next to me. And it would be disrespectful of me towards the producer to, to bring up my opinion when there's a producer that's there exactly for that. If there's no producer, that's a different question. Then, you know, I'm happy to offer an opinion if I'm asked, but I'm still sensitive uh, to my role and to making sure I don't overstep the boundaries. I've been hired as an engineer. That doesn't mean I should be giving my opinion. For sure, yeah. And, you know, I think that that also goes back to that intern conversation too, because I think that that's something that a lot of interns really have a tough time with, right? Like they, they, I think a lot of people go into it thinking like, you know, it's, it's, I'm here, I'm helping with this project. Like I want to be supportive and people want to speak up about stuff when they hear something that's good or whatever. Um, you know, you, you said you kind of just like to stay quiet as, you know, if you're just the engineer and there's a producer in the room, is that, that's how you just view it? Eh? Like not, not even like any positive reinforcement. It's just like, just stay quiet, do your job, mic things up, answer Absolutely. questions. Yep. If there's a producer, it's not my job to, to uh, offer positive or negative reinforcements of any kind. That's what, that's the producer's job. And again, it would be disrespectful of me to do otherwise. If there is no producer, which often happens these days, uh, that's different. But then it depends on the report that you have with the band, the artist. It depends on the relationship. It depends on whether it's considered uh, respectful. It depends on whether the artist asks you for an opinion. Uh, if I feel strongly about something uh, and nobody asks me for an opinion, but I think my opinion might change the course of things for the better, then I, uh, you know, respectfully ask whether I could voice an opinion. Uh, without overstepping my role as an engineer. Uh, but, you know, you have to do so sensitively and when you think it's really necessary. I love that because yeah, I think that that's definitely a fair compromise to it, right? It's like asking for permission to be able to to speak up or, you know, make your... Yeah, I think some people, there might be some people who want, like some producers who actually do value the opinions of the engineers too. So, you know, having those kind of conversations ahead of time can sometimes just make the rules very clear and there's no, there's no mistakes happening on anyone's part, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Clarity and communication fixes everything. So then going back to kind of how you said your role as a producer, you, you might help with some of the arrangement stuff. Um, obviously if you're going to be helping with that stuff, it's because you see that there's room for improvement with the song. And obviously the song is the king with all of this stuff. If you have a great song, then, you know, the recordings are kind of just secondary to that in a, in a way, I, I, at least I think, I don't, I don't know if you feel any different. Absolutely. Yeah. So in your opinion, then what makes a great song? Oh, that's a complicated question. <laughs> um, a great song is a song that transmits emotion um, and it needs to be able to do so in any state. Uh, a great song will always transmit a, an emotion, whether it's, played on an acoustic guitar or whether it's played with a hundred piece orchestra. Uh, and, and you'll know if you have a great song when, you know, 
and people react in a certain way to that. I think that's the easiest way to answer that. What would you say are some of the common mistakes you see artists making with their songs before they enter the studio? The biggest mistake I see before they enter the studio is to not rehearse enough. A lot of people enter the studio um, thinking they're more prepared than they actually are. And they don't realize that once they're in the studio, they're really under a you know, microscope lens. Whether they like it or not, everything they do is going to be heard a hundred times more clearly than when they're in the rehearsal space. So they need to really over rehearse and get in and get to the studio and be over prepared. And that's, that's how you get worked on more efficiently, more quick, quicker, quicker. Uh, it'll be cheaper for you because you'll get out of the studio quicker. So that's the best way. I think preparedness. For sure. Do you have any tips for how bands can prepare better? Cause I think there's a lot of people that maybe jam with their band repeatedly and you know they feel like they've played the songs hundreds of times so they they know it pretty well but like you said everything's under the microscope when you're in the studio so uh you know things are heard more clearly so do you have any tips for ways that bands can pay more attention to their their rehearsal process and be more prepared well i think the the greatest the biggest tip i can give is is to record your rehearsals and listen back because even even if you you don't have to have uh, you know, professional recording equipment, you can have a Zoom recorder or even record it on your iPhone. If you record your rehearsals and you listen back, you can hear where the flaws are. You can hear if something gels or if something feels discomb- discombobulated or whatever. Uh, and you can also, and most importantly, you can listen to it with an outside view because when you're playing, you are concentrating on your performance and you're not listening in the same way that you are if you're listening to a recording. Uh, so when you can disengage from the, uh, you know, motory part of playing and from your brain having to think about the note that you have to play next, then you can really listen to the performance and to not just your performance, but the overall performance of your band. I think that's the most helpful way to see what's what can be uh, improved upon. And I also think, too, that it, a lot of times that that microscope that we hear things under in the studio, it can really depend on the way you're recording things, right? If you're recording things live off the floor, maybe things might be a little bit more blurred than if you're recording instrument by instrument. Um, I'm curious to get to know your opinion on like, what what's your your preferred method? Of recording, you mean like, everyone as opposed to one at a time? Yes. Oh, I'm a big proponent for recording everyone together. Uh, and it doesn't mean you have to do everything at the same time. Like if you want to do vocals later, that's fine. But if you are in a band, a rock band, a metal band, a jazz ensemble, recording together will always yield better musical results than recording one thing at a time. Because when you, if you record the drums first and then you add the bass and then you add the guitar, et cetera, et cetera, the drummer will be playing by himself or with a click. He won't be reacting to anyone else. The bass player will be reacting to the drummer but at this point, the drummer is cannot react to the bass player. So you're, every pass that you do, you're taking away at least 50% opportunity of interaction because everyone who adds something can only interact with what's already happened. It's not a two-way communication. Music is, is a two-way, at least two-way communication, if not four-way in the case of four-piece band or five-way. Uh, and every time you add a layer, 
you're uh, shooting yourself in the foot by not having that full two-way communication. Uh, and so I think if you play together with the musicians, all that interaction that happens, which has made all the great records that inspire us to this day, is how you make a great record. Yeah, I think that's the clearest answer anyone's given on that question on this podcast. And it makes sense. Everything is kind of just stacking on top. So if you start off with that kind of half-assed foundation, then, you know, it can only build so much and be so strong afterwards. So that, yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. There's also no way, I'll, to that I'll add, that adding a million overdubs and a million layers does not, does not make a sound a song better. You know, if a song is good, it's going to sound good with one acoustic guitar or a hundred piece orchestra, like, like I said before. The reason why ACDC sounds so freaking good with four instruments is because they each have 25% of the available spectrum of sound available for the instrument. And so you can hear the four instruments very clearly. If you add, you know, 10 layers of guitars, uh, then you're splitting that 25% uh, space that's, you know, that's for the guitars in the song, you're splitting it 10 ways. So now every guitar only has 2.5% chance to shine. So, you know, less is more. That's why, that's why all that stuff sounds so good. For sure. Well, and I guess that's kind of the conundrum when it comes to digital recordings these days is that you can just keep adding and adding. And I think that a lot of musicians, they, we hear so many songs out there now that do have a lot of layers to them. And, and so there is this tendency for musicians to want to like just keep adding to stuff, thinking it sounds better. Where do you draw the line with that? And how do you decide when it's worth adding more layers or when it's just, it's done? Well, if I'm the producer, then I'll, I'll voice my opinion on that. If I think it needs something, I'll say it. If I think it's superfluous, it doesn't. Every time you do an overdub, you read, you have to ask yourself if the song really needs it. Does this improve the song? Does this make the song better? Or am I just doing it because I have a tambourine here and I want to use it or because I have the available track on Pro Tools? You know, having the option does not mean there is a reason. That's fair. Yeah. And one thing that I've definitely learned about you and, and I've seen you talk about before is that everything is done with intention when it comes to recording and mixing. And yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. That's great. You know, I also think too, when it comes back to that conversation of recording live off the floor versus individually, there's always been certain genres that have just been known for that. Like if you're going to do a jazz record, you're not going to, you're certainly not going to record everyone in independently with that. Cause it's just like, that's just not what the genre has ever had. Um, so you, you kind of have to know your role, especially in those different genres. Yeah, correct. Correct. It, it's very genre specific, of course, but the more the, the more the uh, artist is an ensemble or a group, the more it makes sense to record everyone together. For sure. Absolutely. Well, speaking of like jazz and, and then just it being genre spe uh, specific, um, you definitely work in a lot of different genres. And when I look at your portfolio, you've worked on like rock songs, you've worked on jazz, like indie, pop, you, you metal, like you're all over the place with the genres that you work on. And I know these days it seems to be kind of this narrative that a lot of people say you should really niche down and become known for one thing that you're really good at. But when it comes to your career, you have this very diverse career. So I'm wondering how important it is to you to keep diversity in the projects that you work on. It's very important. Diversity is one of the main reasons why I became an engineer, actually. 
I, I was, or I was, or wanted to be a musician when I was 16 and 17 years old. Uh, you know, I was thinking of myself as a musician, but also I was completely unable to choose what to choose and stick to one genre of music because I liked so many genres. So when I was 17, I was playing in a black metal band. I mentioned that before. Then I had a crossover band with which we recorded several records that was, you know, inspired by things like Fate No More that like, like would mix metal with rock, with hip hop. Uh, then I had a funk project for a little bit and a jazz project. I was all over the place and I could not make up my mind. And I think when you're a musician, it is more important to, to choose a niche because you can become more proficient at it. And it certainly does apply to engineering as well. But I realized early on that my extreme abundance of love for multiple genres could only be satisfied if I were, if I were to become an engineer, because then I could record multiple genres. Uh, but it's important to continue listening uh, throughout your life to multiple genres. You can't expect to, you know, record jazz and record metal and be good at both if you don't listen to both. And you, in order to listen both, you have to enjoy both. And I'm a huge fan of music and I listen to a lot of different genres. You know, I don't listen to a lot of hip hop and R&B, which is why I don't record any hip hop and R&B. Uh, it would be a disservice to the clients if I recorded genres that I don't know well. But I do know jazz and rock and metal well. I've listened to those for years and years, so I'm very, very comfortable recording those. And the variety in my curriculum or my resume, as you said, is really what I'm the most proud of because I don't do multiple genres because I'm trying to make more money. I do multiple genres because I enjoy those multiple genres. I love that answer. That's great. Cause, cause yeah, I was going to say like, you know, how do you normally keep on top of trends in different genres so that you feel like your production chops are staying current? But I mean, it sounds like your answer to that is just listening and being a fan Listen, of that genre. Absolutely. If you're not a fan of the genre, don't record the genre. You're doing a disservice to yourself and to your clients. If you're a fan of it, then you'll be, you'll feel like a fish in water instead of a fish out of water. I go to tons of shows. I go to one to two shows per night before COVID, of course. And now that shows are resuming. Um, and that's my way of staying current and staying on top of things. Uh, that's my way of, uh, of keeping an open mind to the possibilities. I love that, man. I, I think there's a lot of people who don't. There's a lot of people who don't go to shows and there's a lot of people who don't even listen to music that are in this industry. You know, it's like they, yeah, they work. I think and that's retarded and I don't understand how that's possible. I mean, if, if that's almost sounds like you don't really love music. I, I, people always ask me, how can you go to a show after you work 10 years, 10 hours in a studio? which I do, you know, I, I'll work, I'll work a full day in the studio and then go to one or two shows at night. And the re the answer is simple. I love music. I love listening, seeing, recording, watching, editing, record, mixing. I love everything about music. So for me going to a show after recording doesn't feel like an effort. It feels like natural. For sure. As, as it should, right? I mean, you want to enjoy what you're doing and not feel like a slave to your job and, and all that kind of thing, right? And and I also think, too, just on the topic of listening to music, you know, the idea of listening to music on the speakers you work on is so important as well, because that just helps to train your ears and make you better at working in your environment and understanding your equipment better and all that stuff. But 
you know, those people who only work on those on their studio monitors and then leave and listen to music in their car or something. It's like they it's it's almost like a, a longer process to learn that equipment and learn how to really take advantage of the room and and all that equipment as well. Yeah. Yeah. Speakers in room are important, very important. It goes back to the conversation we we're having earlier about recording drums in your bedroom or in your basement. It's just not going to be the same as a studio. And the same goes for a tuned room, a tuned control room in a studio with speakers in it. It's going to sound better if you then if you take those same speakers and you put them on your bookshelf or on your desk. Yeah, I'd love to shift gears and talk a little bit about your mixing process, because I'm familiar. I, I'm curious to know a little bit more about that. Um, when it comes to mixing, what's your mindset going into a mix? Like, how do you start? Where do you start? Do you have a normal process that you follow? If it's something that I've recorded, it's usually, it's usually comes together very quickly because I, uh, I'm of the opinion and the school of thought that you should record things right from the get go and that you should, um, uh, you know, like Al, the great Al Schmidt said, if you are unhappy with the sound that's coming through the mic, don't try to EQ it, move the mic until it sounds right. So get things right in in the acquisition part of the process. Um, and I say that as a preface because that makes my mixing a lot easier when I'm mixing something I've recorded. If I'm mixing somebody else's recording, um, then my approach is to first of all, uh, clean everything up. So I get rid of all the plugins, all the automation, you know, I check, I check to see if there's any plugins or automation that are crucial to the song or that have an important part to the song in a more songwriting type of way. Uh, but if it's just a mix move, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, add, I prefer to start fresh. So I clean all the tracks, uh, from plugins and automation and, uh, things like that. And then I usually, if I'm mixing in the box, I import my template. Uh, which is a mixing template I've been working on for years and years. It is not a template of sounds because I'm against having your using the same plugins all the time. I'm against tying your hands behind your back by, by uh, having to work in a pre-established environment with confines. I prefer, uh, I prefer being open to all the possibilities. So my mixing template simply has uh, all the routing that I need to create instrumentals, TVs, acapellas, 5.1 mixes, parallel compression, all of that. Uh, and it has a, a lot of plugins, but they're all inactive. And I just enable them according to what I want to use on whatever track. So I have options to addition different plugins without having to scroll through a million plugins. My favorite are already there, ready to go. Uh, and that's my mixing approach if I'm mixing in the box. If I'm mixing in the studio uh, on an analog console, which I love to do because I love mixing, uh, you know, I love analog summing. So I usually, in those cases, I usually put the faders at zero uh, on the console and start to there and then add whatever I need in the analog domain. I do my automation in Pro Tools. Um, but uh, I love analog summing. That's great. Yeah, I love like how you mentioned your template and how you just start off with like all everything pretty much bypassed, and it's just basically your routing and like your track names and all that kind of stuff. I'm assuming, you know, that I think that that's such a 
a great way to go about it because so many people just build their sessions over and over again as they work and as they work on new mixes. And it's just such a slower process to do it that way. So the idea of just having at least a routing set up and, and knowing where things are positioned in the context of your session and, um, you know, where things are bust to and having your favorite plugins ready to go. I think that that's just such a faster, smarter way to work. Yeah. I think a template should be a workflow thing and not a sound thing. It should improve and speed up your workflow and it should make you more efficient, but it should not tie your hands behind your back sonically. So then you kind of said you, you don't like to have those confines like working against you when, you, when you're mixing. And, uh, you know, I, I assume you've got your vision for what you want your mix to sound like before you get into it, which is why you don't have those plugins already enabled. Um, so to go along kind of to coincide a little bit with my question about what makes a good song, in your opinion, what makes a great mix? Another hard question, but I'd say a great mix is a mix that um, where you can hear everything clearly, where everything is balanced with each other, and a mix that carries through the emotion of the song so that it becomes an amplifier of that those emotions or a magnifying glass uh, lens for those emotions. Uh, obviously, a mix that, you know, tempers the emotion that the song wants to, wants to portray is, uh, is counter, you know, counterproductive. So the right mix is the mix that goes with the flow of the song dynamically, etc. You know, I, I'm a big fan of mixes that have an arc to them, mixes that have, that grow with the song that are not flat and, you know, all the time peaking at zero dB, super compressed dynamics delivers emotion. So if you kill all the dynamics, you're, uh, you know, you're gonna, you're just gonna have less emotion being, being portrayed in your mix. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And I love, I love what you said about the songs kind of building with the mix. Cause I think that that's how most great songs are written too, is that they, you know, they're not just the same thing repeated over and over again and looping, basically. It's just... The yeah, songs. they have an arc. They build. They build slowly over time. And they, you know, usually uh, they end in a big band or whatever. Whatever whatever the arc of the song is, even if it starts loud and it ends slow, you have to be respectful of the arc of the song. And music is about emotion, but it's also about tension and release. And that tension and release in the songwriting can be also achieved with the mixing. And it's also like, I think that that's also something, especially because you said you work with a lot of live off the floor recordings. It's like the, for singers, let's say, when they start a song and they've got a fresh voice versus when they get to the end of the song and they've just gone through like three minutes of singing their hearts out, you know, they're usually going to be giving, there's going to be a character to their voice at the end of the song that's a little different than at the beginning because they've you know, they're, they've felt it a little bit more and for longer and, you know, the effects on their voice is happening. Um, so it kind of makes sense that you would have a song, you would have a mix that would kind of reflect those changes in the intensity of everyone that's playing, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. The best mixes are the mixes that mix the song and not mix the track. Mix, sorry, I should say mix the songs and not mix the tracks within the song. Yeah. A hundred percent. I definitely agree with that. Your, your goal as the engineer is to make a great sounding song, not a great sounding track. You know, it's like 
nobody's nobody's listening to these tracks in solo. They're all listening to it in context. So you know, exactly. <laughs> never never miss the forest for the trees. I say that to my interns and assistants all the time. So then going back to your process, you, you so once you've loaded everything into your template or you've got your console all set up, do you typically work on your instruments in a specific order or do you kind of have like a hierarchy of instruments that you like to work on? Uh, it depends on the genre. If, it, if I'm doing uh, your typical rock band, I start with the drums and I add the bass and I make sure that the relationship in the low end between kick and bass is solid. And then I add everything else and I get to a good instrumental first before I add the vocals. Uh, but if, if I'm mixing a jazz track, my approach might be different. If I'm mixing a pop track, you know, the vocals are obviously king. So you need to, uh, it's not a bad idea to start for the vocals and build around the vocals. Um, but yeah, I, I usually mix. I usually look at everything as a whole. Like I said, I don't try not to lose the forest for the trees. So I don't get bogged down in details too much. I don't solo. At the beginning of my career, when I was 17 in my first studio in Italy, I remember I was soloing every single instrument and spending 10 minutes EQing and doing everything that my tools at the time allow me to do on every single track. And I've completely abandoned that approach. You know, I don't solo things and, and, and tweak ad nauseum. I just listen to uh, something real quick in solo to, to make sure I, I'm hearing the whole spectrum of frequency. And then I decide what, what needs to be done. And oftentimes, all I do is a little bit of high pass and a little bit of compression. I rarely EQ unless I feel it's necessary. Um, and I always immediately listen to how that instrument sounds in the mix because ultimately it can sound amazing when it's soloed, but if it doesn't work in the mix, it's not going to work for the song. So something might need to be brighter or darker in the mix than it is when you're, when you're listening to it soloed, you know? And I, I feel like you just work faster when you take it from that approach of looking at the big picture rather than, you know, really micromanaging everything. Cause you're probably, when you're micromanaging everything, you're more likely to add more plugins than you need and to spend all that extra time, just like polishing up that song, but then we're polishing up that track. But then, yeah, you're right. Like once you take it out to the big picture and you hear it in context with everything, then you start having to undo a lot of that work and it just, it just adds a lot of time and, and, stuff that you don't need to your process yeah exactly i just listen to things in the context that's more important to me so then how do you know when you're done a mix you got all the hard questions for me <laughs> uh well you're done when it sounds good uh and it's not when it sounds good to you might be different than when it sounds good to the artist uh so really you're done when the artist is happy that's the answer yeah that's that's a good way to look at it yeah because you can be a excited all you want about a mix but at the end of the day if the artist hates it then you're going back to the drawing board <laughs> yeah i mean my artists never hate a mix i've done but they might want a little bit less vocal a little bit more vocal you know and so uh i you know ultimately the client is always right so i give them what they want even if i might not agree i love when an artist hires me to do the mix and i put the vocal I'm just using the vocal as an example. I put the vocal where I think it should be 
And then they're like, yeah, I really want the vocal louder, but what do you think? It's like, well, if I put it there, that's where I think it should be. But if you want it different, I'm happy to change it. But don't tell me to change it and ask me whether you're making the right decision or whether <laughs> it should be louder or softer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess, you know, it's good to have that communication to go back to what you said at the very beginning. You know, having that communication is key because there might be reasons for why you've done something the way you have and, you know, why it may not work in the context that the artist is thinking. So having that line of communication there can can often clarify what's what's really the issue. Yeah, and it's also a cultural thing. Some, you know, some play people cultures like their vocals louder. For example, in Italy, you know, I, having lived in Italy, I get some jobs from Italy. Uh, and I know that they always want the vocals louder than they would be if it was a mix for an American client, you know? So, you, you know, it's funny. Sometimes you mix the same rock song in Italian or in English. Uh, and the Italian version just has three, three more dBs on the vocals. Cause that's just how Italy is, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> I think about like all those artists that like I think it was like Avril Lavigne put out like five different versions of one of her songs with like different languages for the lyrics and you know it's like yeah, I guess you'd have to consider that it's not just a matter of swapping out the words, it's like making the mix for that demographic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> How long does it normally take you to finish a mix? Depends on the complexity and depends on whether I've recorded it and it's or whether it has been properly recorded. Um the average is somewhere around three to five hours. I use a great plugin called Project Time by uh, the German plugin maker Hofa. It's I love that plugin. Free, yeah, it's a free plugin. Uh, and it gives always gives me an insight on how much I spent on a mix so that I know for my own education how long it took me, but also so I can charge the clients uh, in a very honest and transparent way if uh, the client is paying by the hour and not by the song or by the by the album. It's it's kind of like uh, hiring a lawyer in a way, the way you approach it, right? It's like, you know, just being honest, you're keeping track of your time. and, and you Yeah, I'm not doing it to protect myself. I'm doing it to educate myself. Uh, you know, to I've, some, some mixes I see, have, you know, I can do in two hours if they're easy. Uh, and some mixes, just by way of doing revisions with clients, end up taking five hours. So, yeah. The average is three to four hours. Yeah. I love that you keep track of that because I feel like there's something you can learn from the amount of time you spend as well, right? Like, I'm sure there's been times where you've worked on sessions that maybe things went a lot longer than you thought they would be. And I'm sure you could, you've, I, maybe you could tell me, like, have you, have you ever learned from those experiences and be like, oh, I see why it took so long here. Like now I've, I know what to do differently next time to, to make things faster. Yeah, I mean, this probably happened, but I can't think of a specific example. Um, oftentimes, I find that if it's taking longer, I'm talking specifically about mixing, because we're if we're talking about recording, then it usually comes down to preparedness. Uh, but if we're talking about mixing, I think um, the the time of that it's taking you to mix a song will give you a good idea of whether somebody's overthinking some something because a lot of people that are unable to commit or are don't know exactly what they want or don't know how to express what they want end up spending more time on their mixes than somebody that knows exactly what they know, what they want, knows how to articulate it and knows when it's good. 
and knows when to let go. Letting go is very important for artists and some just don't know how to do it. I mean, I've recently worked with an artist, I won't mention names, uh, that did 21 or 22 revisions to, uh, to a mix and had been working on that mix for two or three years. And, you know, I think it's counterproductive. Uh, and it wasn't, uh, to my defense, it wasn't that sh sh the artist wasn't happy with my mix. It was just that they, they were unable to commit. They were unable to let go and be like, this is good, let's move on. And so they end up spending three years and countless revisions on, on something that could have been done and out you know, a year and a half ago. And that's when, as an engineer, you charge by the hour. <laughs> that's exactly why I charge by the hour. I have stopped charging by the song or the, the album a long time ago. I mean, I still do charge by the song or the album, but always with a clause of how many revisions are included. When I uh, do a mix for a client, I include three free revisions, free of charge. And the revision can be anything, can be like even 10 points not just one thing in a song, but after the third song, uh, I mean, after the third revision, if you're still making changes, most likely it's not because of my doing it, because of the artist's doing. Yeah, I love that. I, that's that's great to hear your approach to that. And I love that you put a cap on your revisions. And you know, I, I definitely think a lot of people should do that as well, because otherwise you will get taken advantage of. And even in the, like one thing I personally do, and I'm sure you do as well, now that I know how you charge with your mixes, is um, even when it comes to like recording bands, like I tell them if I'm charging per song, like you're only going to get X amount of time in the studio and anything above that is going to be extra because, you know, then you get those people that aren't, aren't prepared and will take up all your time and you'll make no money off of it. So, you know, no, if for recording, I always charge by the hour. I think it's fair to everyone. It's fair to the artist. It's fair to the engineer. It's fair to the studio. Uh, I, I, I also stopped doing endless lockouts, you know, in the, in the eighties and nineties, we used to do lockouts where you sell the studio for a price for the whole day and then people would take advantage of, of the studio the engineer and the musicians and work 18 19 hours and work everyone into the ground i don't do that anymore I, you know for me a lockout is 12 hours uh and you know i charge them for the price of 10 that's that's usually that's like the the deal that i give for if they want, want to lock out the studio and i tell them if it's, if you work 13 hours, you're going to pay for 11 hours. If you work 14 hours, you're going to pay for 12 hours. If you work 12 hours, you only pay for 10 hours. Makes sense. Well, and it's also like, you know, at the end of the day, we are just people and we have to have this kind of like work-life balance to some degree too, right? So, you know, you can only, you can only do so many lockouts. And what, what does it, what good decisions do you think you're, you're going to make in the 15th hour anyway? You know, I mean, unless you're on a deadline and somebody has a gun to your head, why can't you do this the next day, you know, and when everyone is fresh and, and more, you know, more concentrated, you're going to get better results probably. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, why not revisit it, revisit it with fresh ears and, you know, hear it from a different perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, one thing I was also curious to learn about, about you and your productions is that you tend to have this, uh, focus on making your songs sound really organic and, and live and real. At least that, that's what I hear when I listen to a lot of the music that you've done. Um, you don't seem too big on using samples, unless you are, maybe you are, and you're just using it in like a very natural sounding way. Um, but I was curious to get your philosophy on 
kind of that organic approach versus kind of the hyper edited approach and, and what your philosophy on samples are and when and where to use them? I don't use samples unless um, I need them because I don't have access to that specific instrument. But that's a very rare case. Most of the music that I record and mix is acoustic music. And by acoustic, I mean rock, metal, jazz, everything that's played with, uh, with you know, in real instruments, quote unquote. Not, I'm not implying that a keyboard or a computer is not a real instrument, but you know what I mean? If it's acoustic and it makes a sound, that's, that's what I record. That's what I, I'm good at. Um, and so I don't really do samples unless it's absolutely necessary. You know, there's always a string player waiting to play a part for you. And it's going to sound a thousand times better than your string pad on a keyboard. For sure. Well, this kind of maybe ties back to earlier when you were talking about listening to music and being a, a fan of just mu of music in general. But I know with specifically like rock music and metal music, it's becoming more and more commonplace to hear samples used, especially on drums, right? Um, that that being said, like, do you not feel kind of pressure to to go with the trends of what's happening? Not at all. I couldn't give a rat's ass about the trends. Uh, I think people are using samples in their drums, not because they like the samples, but because it's hard to record drums and make them sound amazing when you don't have the money to go in a professional studio. So the samples have become a shortcut because it's expensive to hire an amazing drummer and go to an amazing studio with an amazing drum set and an amazing engineer. And so you try the shortcut but you're, it is a shortcut. You're trading off. I mean, you know, talk about metal. I work a lot with this drummer called Kenny Grohowski, one of the best New York drummers in metal and in jazz. He's, he's a monster. He's incredible. I love his playing and I love recording him. And every time, and I made a, probably about 20 or 30 records with him in different configurations. And the guy plays like a monster. I record him. It always sounds great. He's recording a stu good studio with a good drum set, a good, good mics, good preamps, good engineering. Of course, it's going to sound great. Why would you need to, you know, do that with samples? It's never going to sound the same. It's just going to sound more programmed. But find me one record where the program drums sound better than a Kenny Grohowski record. You know, uh, I, I don't think you can. And so I, I, I stick to the real thing. Makes sense. I mean, you're you're clearly someone who spends a lot of time in the tracking stage, getting things right at the source. So, you know, you you feel good at the end of it, knowing that you've got the sound that the mix is going to sound like for the most part, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. and, and also I I think that it takes a certain amount of confidence in your skills to be able to, you know, confidently say like, you know, I don't need samples. I'm not going to do what everyone else is doing. I I, I just know my skills and my craft really well. Um, I'm curious to know, at what point did you feel like you were starting to make really good mixes? I don't really have a date. I mean, I think I'm still learning and continuing to improve with every mix. With every mix, I, I try to better myself and I, you know, make it sound better than my last mix. Um, it's, you know, mixing is engineering in general is a lifelong pursuit for perfection, but whether perfection exi exists or not is is, you know, debatable because perfection is subjective. Uh, so 
I just strive for the best and continue to experiment and continue to try new routings, new plugins, new uh, preamps, new consoles, always looking for the best sound. Um, that's, that's my approach to mixing at some, I don't, I can't, I don't really have a date of when I thought it sounded good enough, but I, you know, I've been generally happy f- with my mixes for, for a while now. And usually what, uh, what's a defining factor or what's a factor that comes, uh, that gets in the way of, of that is time because unfortunately, um, a lot of artists these days have reduced budgets and you can't spend as much time as you'd want doing something in the studio. Uh, but that's why, you know, for a lot of artists that don't have the budgets for the studios, I offer unattended mixing out of my home studio for very cheap rates compared to the studio. And so I give them the opportunity to still get everything done and get it to perfection uh, without breaking the bank. I love that. I mean, it shows you're a flexible engineer and you're not going to just put out stuff just to, you know, for this, like you're just done because your time is up. You know, you, you obviously care no, about absolutely. the artists you work with. I care about the artists being happy. Uh, I mean, you are, as an engineer, you are entrusted with the, basically the artist's baby and you need to handle that baby with care, make sure the baby is well fed, make sure the baby's happy. When the baby's happy, the artist is happy. If you are going to drop the baby because you don't have time, the artist is not going to be happy and he's never going to come back to you. So, you know, the key to uh, artists coming back is to make sure they're happy every time they leave. Absolutely. And I think, too, when it comes to that whole idea of like it's the artist's baby, you know, they often have that vision or the producers that you're working with have that vision of what the song should sound like. So when you're mixing, you know, obviously you said earlier that a good mix to you is something that's very clear and that has the emotion and all that stuff. But I'm sure that there's got to be times when as a mixing engineer, you might come up with this like kind of crazy idea in your head of maybe a cool thing to experiment with uh, to, to maybe add some different character or life to a mix. I'm curious to get your, your thoughts on when it comes to making some more creative moves and mixing, what's your typical approach with that? And how do you balance that side of it versus like just serving the song uh, to make the artist happy? Well, I think an engineer needs to serve the song. Uh, if you are getting into pro, pro, uh, creative, pro, uh, creative mixing, then you're kind of crossing the line uh, into the realm of producing. And that's a conversation that needs to be had uh, with, with the artist. The artist might not want that. They might not want you to mess with their baby. Uh, if they're open to it, and you have that conversation and you're okay with not being paid extra for your creativity, then by all means, sometimes I feel that way. Sometimes I'm hearing something, but I never just do it and assume that the artist is going to be happy. I ask the artist, would you be okay if I give you a version that has a, you know, a different approach on this instrument? Cause I feel like it could be cool and they're usually open to it. And, uh, and whether they like it or not, you will, you only do it, know after you do it, but you have to ask because otherwise you're kind of, you know, imposing yourself as more than you were, you've been hired to. Yeah. I love that. I think that's a great, great answer. It's, you know, it all, it all ties back to what you've said already of just the communication and knowing your role. I think that that's, once you have established that it dictates everything moving forward. 
So, exactly. Yeah, that makes a lot exactly. of sense. To continue the conversation about mixing, I'm curious to know what's uh, when it comes to gain staging. How do you approach that in your mixes? Do you have is that built into your templates at all? Like, do you have kind of an approach with your templates with that? Or yeah, uh, there's two things I do. Number one, I always start lower than I think, and a good way to start lower is to turn up your speakers at the very beginning, so that when you start mixing, say the kick drum, you can feel the kick drum. Uh, eventually I, I mix with volume. I mix at very low volumes, but at the beginning I start loud to make sure I feel it in my chest. If it's a kick drum I'm working on and to make sure I don't try to overcompensate for that chest feeling by turning up the kick in my mix more than it's necessary. So start lower than you think you're going to need to be. And the other thing I do is I have uh, VCAs. I love my VCAs, whether it's analog or digital VCAs or in Pro Tools. I love my VCAs so I can bring everything down. Um, and I always have a, uh, a VCA on the sum of the different subgroups so that I can bring those down and decide how hard I want to hit uh, whatever compressor I might be using on the mix bus. Gotcha. Yeah, I love that. That's a, a great tip to just turn things up because I think, you know, so many people just leave their, their monitor controller at the same level and they they expect to hear music a certain volume out of their speakers, you know, uh, so they push their faders up until they hit that and then they paint themselves into a corner with their gain staging because they've just fucked it all up. So uh, I love that tip of just make make your levels match your ears, that kind of thing. Yeah, and it's easy to bring everything down, you know. If you're, if you're pushing yourself in a corner by having turned up things too much, just group everything and bring everything down. Six dBs usually does it, you know, and, and, and continue from there. All you have to do is do that and you'll, you'll gain more space. The compressors will work less hard, etc., etc. Depends on whether you're working in the analog domain or not, because obviously if you're in the analog domain and you turn everything down, then your, your mix relationships change because your level from Pro Tools is hitting the compressors differently, so there the compressors are compressing less. Uh, with it. And if you're doing it in the box, you can group all the audio tracks, bring them all down. That's that's happening post compression, and so that you know your your level relationships don't actually change, except for what you're sending to the mix bus compressor. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why there's that all group in Pro Tools, right? It's like just the easy, quick volume down. <laughs> yeah, but you don't want to do the all group because the all group takes everything, including your reverb returns, your subgroups, your VCAs. You don't want to do that. You need to do a group of only, only the audio tracks uh, so that uh, you're still sending uh, the same, you're still getting the same amount of re reverb returns from your aux tracks, et cetera, et cetera. You don't want to alter your routing in your bus subgroups in your VCAs with an all group. That's a great point. Great point. Yeah. Cause yeah, you're right. If you do hit the all group, everything goes down and your whole, your whole balance goes off. Yeah. That's great. Great point to bring up. Um, one last question about mixing that I'd love to get your thoughts on too, is when it comes to getting the low end, right. Do you have any tips for, for achieving that? That's, uh, that's always something everyone struggles with. Uh, low end is, is hard to get right, if, especially if you're not in a tuned room and if, you're not, if you don't have the ability to work with or without a subwoofer. I, uh, 
both at home and in my studio, I have subwoofers that I can click on or off so I can always check my, uh, my relationships. Uh, and I also know in the studio, the studio is tuned. So I know when it's too much low end and when it's not enough low end, uh, for those out there that are trying to achieve these kind of tonal balances at home, uh, the best advice I can give is to listen on multiple speakers in multiple rooms on multiple systems that will always tell you whether you have too much or too little. And if you consistently find yourself having too much subwoofer, all you have to do is turn up the subwoofer. So when you mix your next mix, you're pushing the low end less because you're hearing it more. If you're working with a subwoofer, if you're working without a subwoofer and you find that you constantly have too much low end in your mixes, then it's probably a good idea to get a subwoofer because that means you're pushing something you want to hear because you're not hearing it. So that's just a couple of advice. I love that. That's a, a great tip because I, I think you're right. I think a lot of people, again, they just leave their monitors where they are and they'll push things until they get it where they think it's supposed to be. But I love, again, that tip of just turn your subwoofer up and you're going to feel it more and you're you're less likely to to do a lot of bad things to your mix. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, I know you got a busy day ahead of you and you got some other stuff you got to do soon. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, but for people who might want to follow you online and learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm on all the social media channels with my first and last name, which is Mark Urselli, which is spelled M-A-R-C, uh, no K. And then you are like Robert, S like Sam, E-L-L-I. So it's Mark Urselli on Instagram, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, and uh, on YouTube, although I'm not very active on YouTube. And then you can go to my website, which is www.markyourselly.com where there's a form you can contact me through. I also answer to DMs on IG and Facebook, but I'm much faster with emails. If you uh, need to contact me, it's best to write me an email from the contact form at markyourselly.com. Awesome. And lastly, are there any cool projects that you're currently working on that you can talk about? Absolutely. There's a bunch. Uh, I'm very proud. I actually have them here. I'm very proud of uh, this record uh, that I made it took four years to make. It's called Angel-Headed Hipster, the music of Mark Boland and T-Rex. Uh, it came out on BMG. It was produced by the late Hal Wilner, who died sadly last year, last April of COVID. Uh, it's a record that has Nick Cave, U2, Elton John, um, Joan Jett, Bournes. Uh, I mean, just incredible performance. It's a quadruple I mean, a double LP, so there's 27 or 28 tracks. Uh, that came out almost a year ago, but I'm, it's still great, amazing reviews and plays, and it's a great record. Then there's a, there's a new record of my quartet with um, the film director Jim Jarmusch, uh, the guitar player Lee Ronaldo of Sonic Youth, and the drummer Balash Pandi. Uh, we made a record uh, two years ago on the label Trost, and uh, we made a new record with this quartet that just came out 10 days ago, uh, June 10th or 11th. Um, and lastly, I'll talk about my project called Steppendoom, which is a project I've been working on for 10 years. Uh, it basically uh, is, it joins doom metal guitar players from all over the world, from bands like Neurosis, Sleep, High on Fire, uh, 
Paradise Lost, all the best of the best doom metal scene wise, but it merges that doom metal, sludge metal with throat singing, which is a technique of creating overtones with your uh, vocal cords and your diaphragm, uh, mostly uh, um, being used in places like Mongolia, Tuva, Siberia. Uh, there's great throat singers there, which I've been uh, collaborating with for the last 10 years to bring this record to life. And it's finally finished, mastered, sent it off to the presses. Uh, the, I'm not going to talk about the label because they haven't announced it yet, but it will come out later this year called Step and Doom. It's going to be a great record that I'm very proud of. That's awesome. Excited to check that out. That sounds really cool. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to be part of this today. And and I think you shared a lot of great tips for people, you know, especially with like, you know, spe- getting their levels and getting their sub sub levels set up so they can balance their low end. I think that those are just major takeaways from this. Um, and uh, yeah, this was a lot of fun, man. Thank you so much for doing this. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me, Mike, and uh, best luck with everything. So that was my interview with Mark Urselli, and that was a great interview. I thought he brought up a lot of really great points, a lot of great tips about gain staging your tracks and managing your low end. I thought that those were some really strong points, and I love the tips that he gave about adjusting your monitors because so many people just get comfortable with leaving their settings as is, and they just turn up everything, and all of a sudden their mixes become a mess because they just haven't really uh, gain staged things properly, and they don't really know what they're listening for. So I love the tips that Mark gave here. Um, it was also really great to hear hear his perspective on recording music live off the floor versus individually. I know we've had a lot of different guests on the show that have said differing opinions, but I thought Mark did a really great job of explaining the true benefit to recording live off the floor and why it really works well and how you can capture a lot of the energy and emotion out of a band when you're recording them live. So I really hope that you enjoyed that episode, and if this is your first time listening to the Master Mix podcast, definitely make sure to subscribe to this podcast, and if you can leave a review on iTunes, that would be helpful as well. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com, and on that website I teach musicians how to create professional sounding recordings from their home studio so that you can showcase your music in the best way possible, feel proud of the results, and use those recordings to grow your career. So definitely make sure to check that out, MasterYourMix.com, and while you're there, make sure to get a copy of the Mixing Mindset book. That is a book that I put out a few years ago and it actually has just recently come out on hardcover copy as well so if you're interested in learning my step-by-step process for creating rock mixes from your home studio definitely make sure to check that out because inside of that book we walk through the entire process of mixing your tracks using eq using compression using all the tools so that you know exactly what to do in order to get the sound that you hear in your head to come out of your speakers and feel confident throughout the entire process so once again definitely make sure to visit masteryourmix.com and check out the mixing mindset book So that's it for today's episode, guys. I really hope that you enjoyed this, and I'll talk to you in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com. 